in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the spirit, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You may be seated. Let's pray for our sermon this morning. God, I pray that you would come and make these words live, that you would come and make yourself known, but God, that you would use me as an instrument in your hands to magnify Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here we are. We are working through Romans chapter 8, the great Romans 8. It's one of those great chapters in all of Scripture to where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has brought together all these themes and he's woven them together, tightly packed them together, and just like a precise, logical machine, he just is laying out some of the great truths upon great truths as he weaves together what life in the Spirit looks like for Christians. What it means to be walk according to the Spirit, what it looks like to live according to the Spirit, just what does life in the Spirit look like for me and for you, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And what we're going to see this morning is this, is that Paul is going to show us just this idea of the miracle of resurrection life and what that means for our present reality, the way that you and I live out our lives in the world today, whether it's us as bankers, or whether it's mommies or daddies, or whether you live in an apartment complex, or you live in a neighborhood, wherever you find yourselves, there is a particular way that Paul presents to us that we are to live according to the flesh so that we may live, as he says. I don't know, um, most of us are, are sports fans, but there's one sport um, around here that you don't see too much, but it, it is the sport of ice hockey. But if you're just a big sports fan, um, there is at least one particular event in ice hockey history that comes to surface um, whenever I think about just the world of the world of ice hockey. Um, it's the ice hockey game that took place between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1980 Olympics that took place in Lake Placid, New York. So in one particular match, the United States and the the team of players for them went head-to-head against the Soviet Union um, in a match that was supposed to be the match that led up to the gold medal game. And in that match, you have the underdogs, the, the United States. You're supposed to go against the by far and away favorite, um, the Soviet Union team, um, who are supposed to come and smash together head-to-head. It's 1980s. It's you could argue the height of the Cold War. You have the two superpowers of the Cold War. And so um, if you go onto YouTube and you watch all the various bits and clips of this particular game, 
You can just sort of feel the tension in the air, right? It's these two powers coming together. It's these two powers colliding and clashing. All of the tension in the, in the air, all the buildup of just world politics, you could just sort of feel getting played out on the, the ice hockey rink there in, there in Lake Placid. Well, as this game ensues and it, and it goes on, what you have is this, that after battling back and forth over the course of the game, they're trading goals back and forth. No one really expected the United States to win. If you go back and look at the history, the six, seven previous gold medal matches were played um, by the Soviet Union, and they won six out of those seven. By far and away, they were the favorite. Like, they had outscored their opponents something like 27 to like seven, and that's specifically against the United States. They've just completely outscored. They were the complete underdog. Nobody was expecting them to win, but lo and behold, what happened is they go into that game, and the United States comes down to the end, 10 minutes left to go in the third quarter. They score that final goal, and then they're able to hold off the superpower, the Soviet Union, for the win. Now, this victory, if you go online and you look it up and you see all these top 10 lists, top 100 lists, almost everybody lists this as one of the top sports moments in the 20th century when the underdogs, the United States, came in and dethroned the powerhouse, the superpower, the Soviet Union, in their own game, ice hockey. And it became to be known as the miracle on ice. So if you go to YouTube and you, and you search for the miracle on ice, you can find it on there. And I watched it again last night. Um, there's, you know, shortened down clips. And it's just really, really phenomenal. Now, it's interesting that they call this the miracle on ice because this victory was called a miracle because something which was highly improbable actually came to pass, right? The United States were the sure underdogs. They were the foregone losers they actually beat the odds, and they won against the Olympic gold medal contenders. And if you've ever watched the video, you watch it, and just the way that they actually score and the way that they're doing their moves by all counts and measures, like it just should not have happened. That win should never have taken place. And so at the end of that game, the announcer is screaming. I mean, the crowd's going nuts. There's people waving flags, chanting USA, and he's like, Do you believe in miracles? And he's just going nuts, you know, because the USA actually, they beat the Soviet Union. They, that's why they call it the miracle on ice. There's just no way this should have happened. The highly improbable actually came to pass. Whew. The Lord agrees with that. Um, so when you think about that idea of miracle, the improbable actually coming to pass, that same idea is what happens And what Paul is going to talk about as he shifts gears as we roll from Romans 8, verse 8, into Romans 8, verse 9. When you turn your attention to these verses this morning, in verses 9 through 13, what you're going to see is Paul talking about what authentic Christianity looks like in regard to the power of the Spirit actually indwelling his people. In his commentary in Romans 8, Ray Ortland writes this, The authentic Christianity can be described as the life of God in the soul of man. Hold on here one second. In his commentary of Romans chapter 8, Ray Ortland writes this, That authentic Christianity can be described as the life of God in the soul of man. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling within the human being, and from the beginning to end, it is a complete and utter miracle. 
So what Ray Ortland is talking about is this, that the redemption of sinful humanity, the fact of everything that we've seen so far in Romans chapter 8 up to this point, that to be in the flesh is to be in death, to be in the flesh is to be outside of Christ, to be outside of Christ is to be completely void of the Spirit. These people, you and I, who are completely deserving of condemnation because of the sin that so easily ensnares us and dwells within us, the miracle of miracles is this, is that this sinful humanity can actually have a relationship with God. The redemption of sinful humanity into a right relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, which actually results in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Ortland argues, is nothing short of miraculous. And so as Paul turns to verse 9 and he runs down through verse 13, he's going to start to talk about the Spirit and show us what it means for believers to be in the Spirit. So far, he's been talking about those out there, those who are in Christ, those who are in the flesh, those who are in the Spirit, those, those who cannot please God if they're hostile to God, they cannot submit to God. But now he's going to actually turn and go, but you, but you who are in Christ, but you who have been redeemed by Christ, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And Paul's going to teach us this main idea this morning, that because believers are in the Spirit, they are to live out the miracle of resurrection life. And so we're going to see three distinct chunks this morning. And Paul's going to connect them all together. And at one point in time, it's going to look like there should be no connection. Because in verse 9, Paul's going to teach us that believers are in the Spirit. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have a saving relationship, by faith, have been justified by Jesus Christ, what you can rest assured is this. You have the Holy Spirit. You are in the Spirit. And he's going to come along and say, because you are in the Spirit, you must know this, that believers will be resurrected through the Spirit. And so he's teaching us once again one of the many benefits of what it means to be in Christ. But then he jumps to an idea that seems like it should not follow. He's going to eventually come to the point and say, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And what's interesting is that he links this idea of living out a life here and now in the present... He actually connects it back to the reality of you and me having this future hope, this future promise, this future reward of resurrection life. And so it's really interesting that Paul comes along and does this. Believers are in the Spirit. Believers will be resurrected through the Spirit. And then we'll see that Paul comes along and says believers are to live out the miracle of resurrection life by the Spirit. So first, let's just look at verse 9. In your copy of Scripture, and you're going to see is this, is that believers are in the Spirit. He says that at the beginning of verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He does not belong to Christ. So last week what we saw was this. Paul took four verses to explain that whole flesh versus spirit dynamic. Once he introduced it, he switched and he began to concentrate very heavily on what life in the flesh looks like. 
Believers cannot please God, or people cannot please God in the flesh. The flesh has a complete inability to submit to God's law because the flesh is hostile to God. The flesh-oriented person has their mind set on the flesh, and the inevitable result is death. And so what Paul does, as soon as he ends that thought at the end of verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he turns, though, because he doesn't want the Roman Christians, he doesn't want you and I to draw the conclusion that we are somehow in the flesh, but he says, no, but here's what I know to be true for those of you who are in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you, however, are not those marked by the flesh. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul now is turning and he's going to slip into this place where he begins to explain what does it mean to be in the Spirit. He's going to encourage them that to be in the Spirit is to be in the place where the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, he says. So this is the crucial dividing line between the flesh, which leads to death, and the Spirit, which leads to life. The hallmark of being in the flesh is the indwelling of sin, but Paul teaches that the hallmark of the authentic believer is actually the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And just in case someone just misses the simplicity of the point, at the end of verse 9, he says this, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to Christ. So to, have, to not have the Spirit of Christ means that you are outside of Christ and still living in the realm of the flesh. But every true Christian has received the Spirit so that our body has actually now become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The personal indwelling of the Spirit is every believer's privilege from the moment they first trust in Christ alone for salvation. So this means right now, if you here find yourself in that place where you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, the promise from verse 9 for you is this, that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you right this very minute. You do have the Spirit of Christ, which means that you do belong to Him. The Spirit of Christ dwells in those who are actually in a right relationship with God. So simply put, to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit. And to be in the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of Christ's people. So believers are not in the flesh, Paul says. But believers are in the Spirit, which leads to our second point, that believers will be resurrected through the Spirit. So having established the fact that you and I are in Christ, back in verse 1 and verse 2, He says, now, one of the benefits you need to know is this, is that the Spirit of the living God now dwells within you. He also calls him the Spirit of Christ. He also says Christ in you. He says you are in the Spirit. These are all synonymous ways that Paul is talking about the reality that to be in Christ by faith, trusting and resting in Him alone for salvation, means that you are in the Spirit. The Spirit of the living God now dwells in you. And what he's going to do is he's going to further tease out this rally. What are we supposed to know about this? Are we just supposed to go, gee, thanks God? Or is there any truths that come out of this reality that you and I, for those of us who are in Christ, have the Spirit living within us? And Paul says, yes, there, there is another benefit to being in Christ. When the Spirit of the living God dwells in you, What you need to know is this, is that you have the sure promise that you will be resurrected. The resurrection of life is going to be yours. 
So just as a construction worker first lays a foundation and then begins to build upon that foundation with a framework, this is exactly what Paul is doing here in verses 10 and 11. He's laid the foundation in verse 9. You're in Christ? Yes, I'm in Christ. Then the Spirit's in you. That's awesome. So now what? Well, let me start building the framework on that. And the framework is this, that you will be resurrected through the Spirit. Since the foundational fact has been established that Christ is in you, you and I are now to see the connection between the Holy Spirit and the resurrection life that we have in Him. See, when the Spirit indwells a believer, the power of the Spirit sets us free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. We are delivered from the domain of darkness and we are transferred to the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. And what this means is that you and I are no longer slaves to sin. We keep beating this drum because Paul keeps beating this drum. He wants us to see this, is that in Christ you are in the Spirit and to be in the Spirit means you are set free from your old ways of living. Romans chapter 6 just hammers this out perfectly. Go and read it, please. Everyone's a slave to somebody is basically what Paul's saying in Romans 6 and it tips over into Romans 7. Before you were in Christ, you were a slave to sin. You had a sin master who was cruel and he ran roughshod over you. You were empowered to him. All you could do was obey him. But when Jesus Christ came along by the power of the Spirit, he set you free from the power of sin and death. You are no longer obligated to obey him. Instead, you are now obligated to obey your new master, your benevolent master, your good master, your loving master, Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is an impotent, dethroned ruler, and his dominion no longer extends over you and I. But even though we have been set free from the power of sin and death, Paul writes something very unique. He says this, it is true. You have spiritual life right now for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. But just because you are in Christ and the Spirit is indwelling you doesn't mean that we get to escape one reality that is common to man, and that is the death of our bodies. Paul writes that in verse 10. He says this, Since Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin... See, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, The moment that we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last that you will ever take. The principles of decay leading to death is in every one of us. Believers, Paul writes, must physically die because of their sin, but the ultimate destiny of our body is not death, rather it's resurrection. So we enter this world spiritually dead, and heading on a path towards physical death. Christ comes, redeems, Christ comes, saves, Christ comes and indwells us. The Spirit of Christ begins to live in us. We move from spiritual death to spiritual life, but one of the realities is this, is that we must still physically die in our bodies as a result of sin. 
But that doesn't mean we're going to be strapped down and saddled with this corruptible body forever. One of the future promises that we have is this, is that through the Spirit, our bodies, which must die as a result of sin, will be redeemed, will be reconciled, will be restored to newness of life. Paul's going to hammer this out later in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's coming a future day where these bodies are going to be restored. They're going to be redeemed. We will be able to taste the first fruits of glorious resurrection life. That is our promise. That is our reward. That is our hope because of nothing we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. Believers must physically die because of their sin, but the ultimate destiny of our body is not death. Rather, it is resurrection life. Even though, Paul writes, the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit is, you could say, resurrection life because of righteousness. Because you and I have been restored and made right with God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ, His person and his work and what he's accomplished on the cross, we now stand right with God. The righteousness of God has been applied to our hearts. And because of righteousness, we're in Christ. Because we're in Christ, we're in the Spirit. Because we're in the Spirit, we have the certain guarantee, the assuredness that we have resurrection life. See, the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer assures us that believers will not be burdened with their weak and corruptible bodies forever. The Spirit is a life-giving Spirit, and He will overcome the death that we must participate in through the resurrection of our bodies. See, when you step back and you just start to think about it, this, I mean, this, this really is quite mind-blowing. Your future reality, my future reality, this future reality of a resurrected body is a certain promise for those who are in the Spirit. It's a foregone conclusion. It's guaranteed. This is a huge point, like, right? We might be thinking about this going, what's the deal? Like, okay, great. That one day I'm going to know the, the fullness of, the fulfillment of resurrection life. What's the big deal? Who cares? Here in a minute, Paul's going to say, you, must, you should really care. Huge point. Big deal. Because the reality of that future day, that future promise, that future reward, that because you are in the Spirit means this, is that we are to now begin to fight against the flesh, which leads to death. We are to fight in the present now to align ourselves with the truthfulness of that future reality. That's why Paul keeps going on about, about this reality of our future promise, this idea of the resurrection life that we have in Him. I love what Paul says here. He says, if you are in the Spirit, the Spirit of God, he says, verse 11, who, by the way, raised Jesus from the dead, if this Spirit of God, if He dwells in you, then God, remember, this, this God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, this God will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
So what Paul is arguing is this, that just as certain as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by God through the Spirit, so too God will also give life to your mortal bodies and my mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, I absolutely love this. What he's saying here is this, like, listen, it's just this logical argument. He goes, listen, if the Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that same Spirit of God lives in you, then we can rest assured that he's going to do the same thing in us that he did to Christ because we are in Christ. And this is just a complete nerd out moment. I don't often go here, but grammar is so beautiful. And I know I just said grammar is really beautiful. And I apologize for that. But when you go down to verse 11 and you see that phrase where it says, God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give. The verbal idea behind will also give is a future indicative. And again, I apologize here. I don't usually go here, but it's just so, it's just too good to pass up. Because what it is, it's an indicative. It's a fact. And it's a future reality. So he says, you've got to know this. Do you want to know something factual, a certainty, the promise that will come to pass? Yes, I want to know. Paul says this, this God will also give life to your mortal body. This is going to happen. It is going to happen. It cannot not happen. If you're in Christ, which means you're in the Spirit. Now you stop there and go, man, that's good news. And it is good news. It's a big point. We should should celebrate and we should be excited about this. You and I have a future hope. We have a hope of life and not death. We have a hope of peace with God and not eternal hostility with God. This reality is true of you right now for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. You, right now. Have an eternal future reward in Christ waiting for you because God has saved you. And if you're in Christ right now, you can rest assured that your future days will be marked by the miracle of resurrection life. And what's mind-blowing is this, is that Paul just doesn't go, man, that was just sort of a cool little fact. I don't even really know where I'm going with this. I just really wanted you guys to know some extra stuff. Now, hey, let's move on down the line. He, He doesn't do that. What's mind-blowing is that Paul does not leave this reality of our future reward, the miracle of resurrection life. He doesn't just merely leave it in the future. He doesn't come to you and say, hey, friend, tip your, lift your head up. Let, let me cast your gaze down the road. Look way down there. You've got a promise. You've got a reward. You've got a certain guarantee of the miracle of resurrection life. So just grin and bear it. Hope life goes easy for you. One day you'll get to partake in that. Right now, I'm not really sure what to tell you. He doesn't say those things. Paul does not leave this reality in the future. For Paul, the future hope of resurrection life actually becomes the driving force for why we put to death the deeds of the body, is what he argues. Look at verse 12, what he does there. My translation, it says, So then, brothers... Some of yours, it might say, therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, the thing I just said. In light of the fact that you have a future reward of resurrection life, by the fact that you are marked by life, by the mere fact that you are no longer in the flesh, friends, don't, don't live in such a way here in the present that is completely contrary to what your future reality is. Don't, 
Don't try to somehow mesh together this dichotomy. Yes, I'm in Christ and I have a future reward where there's no sin, where there's no death. The power of sin has no reign on me. But then somehow you live life here in the present like sin does have power over you. Submitting yourself over and over again to, to the flesh and to sin, living in a way that is according to death. No, Paul wants us to see that believers are not only to know the miracle of resurrection life, but that believers are also to live out right now in the present the miracle of resurrection life. And it happens, of course, by the Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Some of your translations might say we are obligated. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, believers are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh as though we are somehow obligated to obey the flesh and walk the paths that lead to death. See, Paul's just putting rubber on the road. He's shifting gears and there's smoke coming out now. He's looking at you. He's looking at me and saying, are you in Christ? Yes, I'm in Christ. Have you been made new? I've been made new. Are you a new creature? I'm a new creature. Are you an heir of life? I'm an heir of life. And so what he says is this, live like it. By the power of the Spirit right now, live out that reality of what your future reward is. You're not obligated to walk according to the flesh because you're not in the flesh anymore. Sin is not your master. Don't live your life like sin is your master. After all, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And we are not citizens under the reign of death, but we are the recipients of life. Sin no longer has a claim on you and I. We owe it nothing. We are not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. The payment for my flesh has been paid in Jesus Christ. The only debt that I now have, the only obligation I now have is to live out my life giving myself full tilt over to the passions and the desires of the Holy Spirit that lives within me which seeks to desire to use me to magnify Christ and make much of Him. Christ has broken the power of canceled sin at the cross. Sin was canceled and by the Spirit, Jesus Christ dwells in us and He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And now our only obligation is to the Spirit to live according to His desires. I love how John Stott sums this idea up. He says this, If the indwelling Spirit has given us life, which he has, we cannot possibly live according to the flesh since that way leads to death. How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. No, we are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life, to live out our God-given life and to put to death everything which threatens it or is incompatible with it. See, by the power of the Spirit in our lives, we can align our present lives with what our future reality will be 
And this is exactly what Paul calls us to do when he writes, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Some of us this morning might be rolling old school using King James Version this morning. And if you look in the last part of verse 13, it would read this, but if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body. This idea of putting sin to death is typically called, put in the category of mortification. The mortification of sin coming from the King James Version. If you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body. So the old theologies of the day took that word out and said, what does it mean to mortify the deeds of the body? It means this, to put sin to death. The word behind mortify is one of the most strongest words for murder. It's to kill. It is to hold no special place for sin in your lives. What you're to do is to full tilt, put yourself behind the action of laying sin to death, putting to death the deeds of the body. So what is mortification? This is what Paul is talking about here. For someone to mortify the deeds of the body is to take up a ruthless, full-hearted resistance against sinful practice. Mortification is a declaration of war on all attitudes and behaviors that are wrong. This means a believer does not play games with sin. We're not to coddle sin like a baby. We're not to dress it up and give it a little bottle and draw it near to our chest and just hold it and love it and cherish it and pet it and feed it and nourish it so that it grows. We're not to treat sin like that. To mortify the deeds of the body is to treat sin for the viper it is which needs to be beheaded. No one takes a viper and draws it close to their chest so that they can be close to it. No, when you see a viper who's poised and ready to come after you to strike and kill, the only thing a viper leads to is death. You don't cherish death. You don't toy with death. You don't coddle death. You don't, you don't nourish death. You don't bring it close and make it your own. When you see death slithering its way down the aisle, what you do is you go get your garden hoe and you start laying that thing to death. You don't want anything to do with it. Why? Because I want life. And Paul's using a similar analogy where he's saying, listen, sin is death. You do not want anything to do with death. You are marked by a people who have the promised reward of future resurrection life. You have life in the Spirit. So don't somehow live out the reality of your life in the Spirit by giving yourself over to the flesh. No, live out your reality of life in the Spirit by putting flesh to death, which shows that you actually are an heir of the future reality of resurrection life. See, to live out the miracle of resurrection life, fighting to align your present reality with your future promise is more than just avoiding things that you know are sin. It is to declare war on anything that would seek to use our body, our ears, eyes, mouth, hands, or feet to serve ourselves instead of God and other people. The other thing that we need to know about mortification is this. When, when we think about this idea of if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live is that mortification is not a single-player game. It's not a single-player game. What do I mean by that? The way that you and I grow in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness, if you want to use the phrase that Paul used earlier, the way that we walk in such a manner where we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, living a holy and obedient life to God by the Spirit, it's not one of those things where we go, God... Man, have I got some sin. Hope you figure it out and work this thing in me. 
And it's not the other side of the coin where it's a single-player game where we sit back and go, God, you saved me. That's awesome. Then we take our little God of salvation and we set him down on the pedestal. Then we come over here on the other side and then we start doing and working and doing and working apart from the power of the Spirit, trying to grow in holiness. The Galatians tried to do that and Paul rebukes them in Galatians 3 saying, you're bewitched. He says, do you think grace saved you and grace has nothing to do with the way you grow? You're foolish. Grace saves and grace sanctifies. Grace saves and grace is the fuel in the engine of mortification. Mortification, putting to death of the deeds of the body, is not a single-player game. Mortification is something that we are called to do. You put to death the deeds of the body. But victory in our fight against sin is ultimately by the means of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It's one of those glorious paradoxical pieces of Scripture where it's like, how are you growing in holiness? Who's responsible for that? Me? Yes. God? Yes. Who is it? Yes. It's just one of those things. It's just the way it works. God comes and he fuels you. He empowers you to see sin in your life. And what you do is you, you tap into that, going back to last week, by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit and going, God, I see this indwelling sin, this, this remaining sin within me, and I hate it and I loathe it. This is Romans 7 language. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Praise be to Christ. It is him who will do this. So Paul then turns and goes, brothers and sisters, know this. You're in the Spirit because you're in Christ. You're in Christ because you're in the Spirit, which means you now have the very tool to grow in holiness living within you. It's mind-boggling. But that's Christianity, that the Spirit of the living God dwells in you, and that is the very instrument that you need so that you can actually slay the temptations to sin and the temptations to use your body in a way that is given over to flesh. It's not dwelling within you. It's mind-boggling. In mortification, both God and you play a part in putting sin to death. Now, see, some of us are frustrated in our daily walk with Christ. Because we misunderstand how to live out the miracle of resurrection life by means of mortifying our sin. So some of us are thinking like this. Some of us think mortification is God's deal and has nothing to do with me. The way I'm going to grow is when God gets his act together and starts doing things, taking away these desires and these temptations in my heart. Right. So some of us think mortification, putting the deeds of the body to death putting sin to death, putting these temptations to sin to death. Some of us think this idea of mortification is God's deal and it has nothing to do with me, which means that you often find yourselves frustrated with God because he's not moving fast enough, right? Have we ever been mistakenly there in that place? God, how come you're not taking away this temptation? How come you're not taking away this desire to sin? God, what is your deal? God, what's your problem? God, where's your part? God, why aren't you moving fast enough? I've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and I'm still dealing with this thing. God, where are you at? You still find yourself struggling with the same old sin, and you begin to doubt God. God isn't powerful enough to get rid of this sin. You begin to wonder why he hasn't taken care of you. If God really loved me, then he would actually remove this thing from me. But when you look back, step back, and gaze upon the panorama of your life, your whole mentality has been this. God saved me. Grace came to me in salvation. But your whole idea of sanctification was this. sure hope God starts firing on this thing pretty quick. 
as you continue to fill yourself, go to places, see things, look at things, act in certain ways that are entirely contrary to Scripture. You stand back and go, God, why aren't you saving me from this? It's like, bro, you're not fighting. And when we have a wrong view of how mortification works, thinking it's God's deal and not ours, it will inevitably lead to frustration. You'll begin to accuse God. It's God's fault that I'm not growing. When he's standing there going, listen, the sphere of responsibility is this. I'm empowering you. Fight, man. Other of us, we assume mortification is our deal only. And that God really has nothing to do with it. It's the Galatians 3 mistake. Jesus, you saved me. That's good. Now let's get down to work. And you start building up rules. And you start building up laws. Oh, okay. I know if I go here and see this thing, this thing will cause me, cause me to lust. I know if I go to this place, I will start to use my, my mouth to speak sharply. I know if I do these things. And so what we do is we start, we start to build up laws. For other of us, we assume mortification is our deal only and that God really has nothing to do with it, which means we become frustrated because we're trying to do with all of our might that thing that only God can do. Isn't it just laborious to try to do what God has called you to do apart from the power of God? That's <laughs> laborious. Self-defeating, it's no fun. And the good news is God doesn't call you to do it. He doesn't say, hey man, I've saved you. Get your act together. Get out there. By your own power and your own strength, begin to lay sin to death. He doesn't say that. This doctrine, this idea of mortification is one of the glorious doctrines where he says, listen, I will empower you for you to go and do something. I'm going to go do something. I can't do it on my own. I know that's why I'm here to empower you. And it's one of those beautiful, self-feeding, two-sided coins, paradoxical ways that God has designed for you and I to grow to be more and more like Jesus. See, when we assume that growth in Christ-likeness, mortification, putting the deeds of the body to death, is our deal only and that God really has nothing to do with it, we will become frustrated trying with all of our might to do what only God can do. So instead of preaching grace-centered little mini-sermons to ourselves and relying on the Spirit to put sin to death, in those moments when temptation comes, in those moments when, when sin just lands in your lap, in those moments where you just feel your heart being drawn away by the pleasures of sin, in those moments what we're supposed to do is this, is go, man, I'm in Christ I'm a new creation. I have the future reward of resurrection life. And what I am, I want to experience now in the present. What I am in the future, that future reward is by grace alone. It's by faith alone. It is the gospel, the good news that's been applied to my heart. And because I am a grace child of God, what I'm going to do is tap into that grace in that moment and go, God help, God save, God move. Help me in this moment to see the deceitfulness of the pleasures of sin. Sin is on my doorstep saying, I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. I'm more pleasurable than resurrection life. Brother or sister, you want life? I will give you life right now. But it's in that moment where we go, no, many grace sermon time. And you start preaching to yourself, no, grace, Christ better, more pleasurable, more fulfilling, more forever in Jesus. But instead of preaching many sermons that are centered on grace to ourselves and relying on the Spirit to put sin to death, what we tend to do is preach law-centered many sermons to ourselves, trying to control and manage our sins. 
we say things like this when temptation lands in our lap. Well, if I do that, God will get angry at me, and I don't want God to be angry at me. Temptation comes your way. Well, it's against my Christian principles to do this, so I better not do it. Temptation comes your way. Uh, it's going to hurt other people around me, and I don't want to be, be used to hurt other people. Temptation comes your way. We argue with ourselves that I'm going to be embarrassed if people found out, so I better not do it. Temptation comes your way. We tell ourselves my self-esteem will be hurt. I better not do it. Temptation comes our way. We tell ourselves I'll hate myself in the morning if I do this. So I'm not going to do it. Now, some or all of these may be true. Buying in to the temporary pleasure of sin over against the pleasures of Christ may lower your self-esteem. It may hurt others. It may make you feel bad in the morning. You may be embarrassed. It may be against your Christian principles. But Paul tells us that this way of thinking is entirely adequate because this way of thinking is void of the gospel of Christ and in the end, they don't kill sin. Right? You're just dealing with the periphery. Temptation comes your way. Temptation comes to lust. Temptation comes to be prideful. Temptation comes to spout off with your mouth to your wife and in that, in that moment, what you do is you, you stand there and go, you know what, I, I mean, I would just hate myself in, in about 10 minutes after the conversation goes by and the dust has settled and tempers have, have flared down, and so I'm just not going to do it. Well, that's good. It may have stopped you from sin, but what it didn't address was the heart. The law addresses the external. We need the grace spade to come into the soil of the heart and to rip out the root that is producing that desire to sin. See, it really goes back to last week when we talked about those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And in this case, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to be enamored with the gospel of Christ. Ultimately, to mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit is to wither sin's power over you by focusing on Christ's redemption in a way that softens your heart with gratitude and love which brings you to hate the sin for itself, not its consequences, so that it loses its power of attraction over you. That is what it looks like to grow and to live in such a way where you're setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. So how do we respond to this? Let me wrap it up with this quote, and then we'll be done. John Piper takes this the same thought and in a way that only obviously he can do, he, he trims it down. And he just completely puts the period on the end of the sentence of everything that we've been saying this morning. He puts it like this. As I read the New Testament, the pervasive focus of that sanctifying faith is faith and future grace. So there he is talking about that. You look down the future and go, future grace? God has something for me in the future? What we've been talking about is that future reward of a resurrection life. The pervasive focus of that sanctifying faith, that mortifying faith, is faith in future grace. That is faith in all that God promises to be for us in Jesus Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. In other words, 
the way you and I tap into the power of God for the miracle of sin-killing sanctification is by hearing a blood-bought promise of God for our situation and by believing it. Embracing it as a treasure more precious than the pleasure of the temptation in front of us. You hear what he just said? It's in that moment when temptation comes your way and it looks you square in the face and says, I don't care what Christ has promised you, I am more pleasurable than Jesus. And it's in that moment you ask yourself, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe in the promise that by the Spirit in me, I have that future reward, that promise of resurrection life, and in that promise of God, that blood-bought, sanctifying promise of God, that in that is more pleasure, more infinite pleasure that can ever be found, or am I going to trust the promise of this temptation which is in front of me telling me, you will find pleasure in me? Piper says, the way we tap into the power of God for the miracle of sin-killing sanctification is by hearing a blood-bought promise of God. You have forever life, resurrection life in the Spirit. That is for your situation, and by believing it, embracing it, this treasure, this promise, this future certain reward is more precious than the pleasure that is being offered to me by this temptation in front of me. In other words, he writes, as the Holy Spirit awakens and moves through that faith in God's promise. I'm believing this. God, in this moment, by the Spirit, I'm going to choose to believe right now that this promise of this future reward of resurrection life is true. In it is more pleasure, more fulfillment than I could ever possibly imagine. The Holy Spirit comes and awakens and moves through that faith in God's promise He says, this is where the power of canceled sin is broken. It is dethroned. It loses its compelling force because by the Spirit, faith embraces God's promise as more satisfying. The power of canceled sin is broken by the power of a superior pleasure. And faith is the soul's embrace of that superior pleasure. We said it when we were preaching through Colossians. The way we fight pleasures of sin is with the pleasures that we have in Christ. Paul is just saying this in a different way right now. You have an infinite pleasure stored up for you as an eternal reward, resurrection life. Let the reality and the superior joy of that promise inform the way you and I live right now. Because sin, tomorrow, I'm telling you, it's going to happen when you walk out these doors. And if it doesn't happen today, may the Lord bless and keep you because it's going to happen tomorrow morning. As soon as you step foot into the workplace, sin, the world, is going to come crushing in on your doorstep. And it's going to just be a big, long line of sin temptations going, I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. Are you going to believe that? Next. I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. Are you going to believe that? Next. I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. Are you going to believe that? I mean, that's what, you're going to be, that's what your day is going to be like. How on earth do you fight that? I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. I don't buy it. I cho- by faith, I'm choosing not to believe that. And this isn't some self-help thing. I'm just, it's just saying, I believe your promise. You're the promise-keeping God. You're the God who doesn't change, who doesn't lie. You are immutable. You're unchangeable. You don't speak lies and half-truths. You don't speak falsities. You're the truth-speaking God. So when you tell me in me is more pleasurable 
riches than we could ever infinitely imagine. I choose, I believe that. So then when anything comes our way and goes, it's in me, infinite pleasure, we just go, no, this just can't be true. Somebody's got to be lying here. It's either Satan or God. I'm going to go with God on this one. And oddly enough, that's the way growing in Christ-likeness looks like. It's hard in the moment. Yeah. That's why you don't prep for battle in the heat of battle. That's why when it says here, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, what, we, what any soldier knows is this. You do prep work before the battle. You take up the sword of the word before battle. So that when that temptation comes, what you have is this. You grip the sword of the word, but then according to scriptures, it's God's hands that come around your hand. And him through you, you start thrusting sin through with what? The only weapon that you and I have, the sword of the word. Don't assume that you're going to roll into battle tomorrow morning and then all of a sudden you find yourself in battle and go, oh, what do I do? You're going to get killed is what's going to happen. You're not going to trust and rest on the promises because you haven't been equipping yourself, filling your armory full with the promises of the Word of God, which lay sin to death. So what do you do? You go home this afternoon, and you just start filling it yourself up. Well, there's a little dagger. There's a sword. There's an axe. There's a knife. There's a sword. There's a scalpel. There's an axe. There's a sword, there's a knife, and you start building up that armory of the promises of God so that when you go in on Monday morning and sin, temptation comes your way and says, I'm more pleasurable than Jesus Christ, what you do is you reach in the armory and go, um, no. You run that thing through. And then you go on down the road. Don't prep for the heat of battle in the midst of battle. Prep for the heat of battle during peacetime so that when you find yourself in battle, waging war against the pleasures of the world, you'll be equipped by the word of God for the spirit of God to reach into the armory of God and pull up. So I'm going into battle like this, and I look down my hands, I'm like, oh no, then the Holy Spirit's like, whoop, and gives me a sword. I'm like, oh, that's right, man. I remember that verse now. That's, that's great. <laughs> and you just run it through, man. You kill it. It's dead. It's gone. And you go on down the line. I believe that's what Paul's driving at. That's how he connects this idea of the Spirit of God dwelling in us to the future reward and the pleasures that we have of resurrection life and what that means for you and I today, tomorrow, this week as we seek to live out the miracle of resurrection life. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, I just felt like you really wanted me to slow down there in that moment towards the end there and just really tease that idea out. And God, I, I pray that you would use that to encourage people here today. My assumption is this, that one of us here today needed to hear that. I know I needed to hear that. Good grief, I'm the one preaching this. So God, I pray that as we leave this place, you would draw to mind our desperate, desperate need for the power of the Spirit once again. God, I ask you to see fit to answer that prayer as we, like little children, asking our Heavenly Father, God, I need the Spirit, empowering by the Spirit so I can walk in the necessary obedience that you've called me to. And God the Father, the good Father, sees that as a good and right prayer, and he will see fit to answer that. So God, I pray that you would come and do that. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.